Welcome everybody to the After Ed Podcast with Jason Vest, where we interview thought leaders, educators, and students from around the world, people that just aren't content with the status quo. Why should you listen to me? Because I'm an educator right there in the trenches doing it every single day. Please tune in. Yeah, let's go ahead and do it. So, um, all right, uh, everybody, uh, I'd like to welcome... uh, Wonderful educator, Anthony Gabriel, to the show today. Thank you, sir, for being on. Thanks for having me on, Jason. I appreciate it. So um, typically what I do is uh, I like to give everybody a heads up uh, as to who they're really listening to. So um, don't blush, but I'm just going to go through here and talk about all of the awesome things that that you do uh, in your life and, and have done. So I guess currently where you are now, you are the... Uh, supervisor for learning, development, and professional growth uh, for the Garnet Valley School District in Pennsylvania. You're an adjunct, uh, senior adjunct faculty member of uh, the University of Pennsylvania's Penn Literacy Network. You have, it seems like, literally done it all. You have uh, worked as a 7th through 12th grade English teacher. Um, you've been an instructional staff developer. Uh, you have taught and co-taught everything from uh, an academic uh, level of, con- of inclusion to AP English. You are authored uh, all kinds of works uh, on English and science. Um, you are a been a part of the classrooms f- for the future teacher. You work with teachers across the country. I know that firsthand. Uh, you have a blog that you run, and then somehow you manage uh, to also be involved with the Pennsylvania Department of Education, uh, working with them, and uh, also, uh, in particular, the hashtag Go Open movement, which I'd, I'd like you to talk about later. Uh, and then, you, you even, I, I really don't know how you find time for this, but you, you're also the co-owner of a real estate business as well. So, and, and not, to, not to mention... Sorry, sorry. Not to mention that you are uh, a husband and father as well. Yes, yes. Six-year-old twins. <laughs> so that's always a challenge. <laughs> so uh, again, thank you for for being on, and, and I just want to go ahead and say that uh, you know I I met you through um, something else that I haven't mentioned yet that you've worked on with. Um, sure something called the Innovative Teaching Academy. And um, if you don't mind, just will you just kind of briefly tell folks what that was? And I'll just go ahead and say that uh, this was a huge catalyst for me to get from just being um, in my own brain, in my own building, my own classroom, to actually uh, expanding that and really trying to reach and connect with people across the world uh, just to make education better. So w- what is the Innovative Teaching Academy? So uh, for those of you that are listening who, who know A.J. Giuliani's work, um, this was a, a brainchild of A.J.'s. And basically what he did was he built out an online learning experience that focused on helping educators um, innovate in education with a purpose. Um, and, and a big part of uh, his background, so AJ and I actually talked together for uh, quite some time. Well, we were both English teachers, lacrosse coaches together, and then we were staff developers together for a while in a district. Um, uh, it's called Wissahickon. It's a suburb of um, 
the World Championship Philadelphia Eagles, city <laughs> of brotherly love. Uh, so, and, and where I am now in Barnet Valley is also a suburb of um, Philadelphia. And so, AJ and I had met in the English classroom of Across World for a couple of years, and you know his influence uh, just from uh, uh, taking everything and. and education to the next level at that particular school and on, on my career it was huge and then you know we, we stayed friends we're both in sort of supervisor director roles in different districts outside of Philadelphia stay in touch a lot and one day he called he said hey he's like I this idea to kind of share all this work I've done over the years and you know some of the books I've written that really build it into a course for other educators to not just read about it but get hands on and so um, I said that was, a, that was a great idea and so you know he developed the online teaching academy or innovative teaching Yeah, and you know, that is, I think what's also so great about the Innovative Teaching Academy is not only are you with a group of like-minded individuals, uh, but you also get the practical applications necessary to really take that next step. And that was really helpful for me because, you know, I knew that I wanted to do something different. Uh, So, you know, I had the support and the coaching from you guys, but you all also lay out everything you would possibly need to make that uh, a reality. And that's, that's really important, I mean, for anything in teaching. It's, you know, we've all been to those professional development sessions or taken those courses, and it's been highly theoretical or it's been a lot of, you know, great talk around doing. Yes. But without that sort of back, as you mentioned, that practical piece, the backbone and, you know, it, you know, I, I look at my, obviously my 20th year in education, you know, I look at my career and the influences, uh, the most effective influences, most powerful influences were things like that, you know, where I could not only learn, but then get, you know, well, here's how you do it. You know, here's lesson plans, or here's resources, or here's a couple ways I've seen it done or I've tried it with my kids. And I think what was really powerful about the, the ITA was exactly that. You're, you know, you're, you're crowdsourcing, in a sense, all of this knowledge from across the world. Because um, we did get people from, you know, all parts of Asia, you know, Europe, Australia involved, and New Zealand. And so you're getting these, these folks that have tried all this different stuff. And, you know, it wasn't just, yeah, I tried it, this happens. Like, I tried it, here's all my stuff, see what you can do with it. You know, and, and yeah. let me know if you find out a better way to try it. And so that was, I think, a really powerful piece and what made it very, very practical. So let me ask you this. Um, I always like to try to figure out with the people that are on kind of taking us on a journey back in time because I know for me what my moment was, what my moments were that really shifted my thinking from, hey, you know what? Like you actually are going to have to do more and like you're just not content with the way things that are. Uh, in our educational system. So do you have a, a singleton moment or a series of things that happen where you just said, hey, you know what, like, I'm going to make a change here? So, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I was, as you had mentioned, I was a, a middle school English teacher um, early in my career for about the first seven years. Well, five of those, I was a teacher, too. I was an instructional coach. And during those years in 
instructional coach is when I had an opportunity to go out and sort of expand my horizons, right? Learn. I spent some time up at uh, Columbia's Teachers College with Lucy Calkins, learning kind of balanced literacy and the workshop approach. At the same time, I took a pet literacy course and got involved teaching with them. And so, like, first aha moment was like, wow, there's a better way to do this, you know? And, and there's a way that includes choice for students. Um, and that really focuses less on what I thought I should be teaching and more on what they need to teach. And so that was kind of the first, you know, just from an instructional perspective and, and my role, a literacy perspective, English literacy perspective, was a big moment. And then the second moment came actually was when I met AJ. So uh, I'll, I'll try to keep this short, but so I moved to the high school uh, and we were, um, our 10th grade curriculum was built around the essential question. Our 10th grade English and Social curriculum were built around the essential question. How do I inhabit and embrace the global community? And so every piece of text we brought in, whether it was nonfiction, fiction, poetry, pieces of writing, everything we did was sort of geared towards that essential question for kids to sort of wrestle with. And we had uh, one of the, two of the units uh, in between the second and third market periods uh, where the, we really hit heavy in the second market period, things fall apart and hard darkness. So Shebe and Conrad and sort of that idea of colonization, uh, European colonization, then we moved into night. And so to span those two units, we had the kids do an eye search uh, around human rights violations. Okay. Um, so a lot of choice there, um, you know, heavy, you know, evidence-based research project. And at the end of it, and this is the irony of all this, we had had the one that we Christ Future School, and so we had had a lot of laptops, and kids had access in school, not at home necessarily, but and we had the kids doing all this research, and it was great. It was Student Choice was built in, a lot of heavy literacy stuff for Penn we've been doing was built in, and we had the like, Collins writing structure, so it was like this was our one type five writing that year, and we would have them develop, at the end of it, all this research, we would have them develop basically um, like an informational uh, piece that then got turned into a letter and sent to like a congressman or, you know, somebody that was involved with an organization helping to try to, you know, stop child trafficking or whatever it was. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and we, we were like, well, we're doing a great job, right? There's student choice, they're reaching out to real people and mm-hmm. the Collins type fine writing. And AJ comes over and, and if you know any of his background, he spent his summers in Swaziland, you know, building schools and, and he had his, Masters in global global education, and he had a, a much deeper understanding. We found out later of social media and technology, and what how much power how powerful it is for kids. And so he comes over, we lay this prize out, like you gotta check this out. And at the end, he asks us, "Well, so should they write a letter?" And we're like, "No, no, 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 no. they write an email, <laughs> you know." And, and he just kind of looked at all of us, and, and you gotta understand that the median age of the smart time is probably thirty three. Right, so you know we were all very young and pushing the envelope of things, and, and he just said, "Well, do you guys mind if I just do a different outcome?" And we're like, "Yeah, no problem." And so at, at the end of it, this is the aha moment I'm getting to is he had his kids using social media platforms to to literally inhabit and embrace the global community by creating GoFundMe you know, accounts and uh, all sorts of live, real um, sites and. And, and places for, for people to help actually make change, you know, and, and for us in the department, for me specifically, it was like, oh, you know, it, it, it was like, okay, we, we got ourselves to a certain point of, like, the understanding about, like, student choice and, and helping to make learning relevant, get them involved, and bring in the real world, but that extra step of, of students as creators, 
um, I think, really had it sunk in. Like, we had had the blogging and doing some things, you know, pseudo-internally, but that that idea of students as creators and then it had, the idea that technology can empower them to actually make change. Um, you know, I think if you, uh, you know, not, not to get too current with, with everything, but everything going on, you know, from, before, from Florida yeah. you know, recently and, and the impact and the power that students are now able to be a national voice um, for a change is a really powerful thing. So I would say that that was the, the bigger aha moment for me uh, so many years ago was we were we were limiting our kids' abilities to actually get out there and, and work in the real world. And so that was the big shift in terms of like, wow, we need to, we need to rethink education, you know, and, and how we're approaching curriculum, how we're approaching uh, learning with kids, and how we're approaching how we assess kids. And that was really, really that moment. Yeah, and that, that's such a great story. And, and I want to come back to some of the things that uh, I know that you guys have, or, or you in particular in your school district, have really been working on to keep enhancing the learning for kids. Um, but I kind of want to stick with, um, you know, like that whole letting kids have their voice and then just run with it um, mindset because uh, here in here in Enrico County, my school district, we're starting a – we're in the first year of a middle school transformation where we've created our own framework and, and we're really trying to, you know, literally and figuratively transform uh, the experience for the kids. And so I know that I've been fortunate this year to teach a class where I know personally that what I'm doing is stepping back and letting the kids run with it. But let me ask you, why do you think some teachers are so, and not even just teachers, we can say administrators or central office staff, parents even, why are they so reluctant to hand the reins over to kids? So I think there's, there's probably three factors, um, you know, really maybe two. And the overall, I think, is just fear, right? Yeah. Um, fear of loss of control, um, fear of, oh my gosh, where are they going to go? Um, at some level, you know, turning turning the range over to kids without, you know, all most all of us get into teaching because we want to we want to help, right? We want to do you know help kids be better versions of themselves, yeah, right? And so, whether we had great teachers as kids who inspire us to be there, or we had a really bad experience as kids, and we, you know, we're coming into this profession saying, we don't want to ha- ever have a kid go through what I went through. I want to make his or her life better in school. Um, you know, we only, we grew up, in, I mean, look, I'm 42, man, so I, I, I was middle school, high school, late 80s, mid-90s, you know, college, late 90s, you know, none of this was around. So a lot of my education was pretty traditional, so that's what we did. You know, and, and for as, as good as colleges are at some level, you know, teacher prep programs have a long way to catch up, um, you know, to what's actually happening in classrooms today. Most most do. And so I think that fear of not knowing what that looks like, you know, I, I think is what it would look like to give kids the range is, is probably the, the biggest piece. And then at some level, the, the state standardized tests, you know, depending on uh, whether you're in a public district, you know, or what kind of school, there's always that fear of if we let go and give the kids more choice and voice, what's going to happen to that? Yeah. Um, and I think another fear. And then, so on the flip side of fear, you know, is it's probably control. You know, it is okay, if I know if I'm delivering, I know. I quote unquote know they're getting it. 
know, we all know that's not necessarily true, but that's the belief that we have. Um, and so if I can, you know, control the learning environment for the kids, uh, you know, then I, I can make sure that I'm hitting the standards I have to hit and things of that nature. And on the flip side, I think what I lacked when I started to try to let go was structures to teach kids on how to do it on their own. Right, so like the first couple times I tried to turn over like a lit circle or you know, we're gonna do reading workshop, you're gonna choose what you wanna read, you know, and it was a disaster, you know, or yeah. even the first time I tried to do eye search, it was a disaster because I just thought, oh, well, you give a kid's choice, they're good to go. And so what they lack is, you know, structures and processes on how to manage that, you know, and it was, that was a, a big learning curve for me early on in my career. I was like, look, you can have them do inquiry based research or an eye search paper. You still need a guide to do the steps yeah. of developing research questions, managing your time, you know, uh, vetting sources and sites. You know, what search engines can you use so you don't get lost in this rabbit hole of cat videos? You know what I mean? <laughs> class when you're searching. So, it, it, and that was, you know, Without those structures, kids struggle. And then as a teacher, I remember watching, well, wow, they're this, you do this, this is, I, you know, well, I got to step back from this. And so then you kind of recoil back into what you know. So I, I think if you were really breaking those sort of two overarching things to recap, it's probably fear and control. And, and some of that is, you know, fear of all those outside pressures of what's going to happen. But then control of, I, I have to, I have to trust that if I can, if I give them the tools, they're going to be able to manage it on their own. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to happen immediately. But over time, uh, it's really going to pay off. And so I think at some level, that's that's what from, from working where I did prior and us going down that road of you know, really early on uh, because of a lot of external pressure, you know, moving to a more student-centered uh, school district. Uh, and, and, the, you know, we had the, the, the experience of, Let's turn it over to kids. Let's teach them how to do it on their own, and our scores skyrocketed. Yeah, um, we were still standards aligned. Uh, you know, we were still following the, the Pennsylvania, you know, standards, the PA core. But we had I, our kids were so engaged. Uh, you know, when we when we backed it off and focused on some key learning and key things and built structures for them, not only did their achievement, and it's a pretty diverse district. Um, that, that AJ and I worked in, but not only did their achievement continue to grow, but their growth. Uh, was really, really strong when you looked at all those, you know, those measures. Um, and so, but, but to get to that point, we had to have external pressures of, you know, the state saying, you're not doing a good enough job, look at these scores. Uh, and that, that's harder to do in districts where you do have high achievement naturally, um, you know, to sort of let go and, and say, okay, now we need to teach you how to do. Yeah. Yeah, that that's a great point. Uh, you know, we, I feel like the natural tendency for people, uh, you know, talking about change in education is to think that, oh, well, the, you know, the lower socioeconomic group, the, the discipline issue, the, uh, you know, troublesome school, like that, that's going to be the hardest sell, the hardest change. But yeah, I, I'm with you. I would argue that the, the kids that are all making straight A's uh, and taking AP courses and the teachers that are good at that game, those are the hardest individuals to get to shift the, the mind. Sure. So, sure. look, I know you have done uh, a few different things that are really uh, great in particular. 
some things with blended learning and uh, yeah. curriculum and instruction. And I really want you to talk uh, as much or as little as you'd want to about either one of those. Uh, so I'll let you take a pick. You just, the audience will love either one. So blended learning or curriculum and instruction, which, which one do you want to go at first? Well, I'll talk, I'll talk about both together because you can't have one without the other. Okay. Um, it's something that we realized. And, and I'll also, you had mentioned the Go Open movement earlier and Open Education Resources is all tied in how that um, really uh, supports how those are sort of the three prongs of where, where we are right now at, at Garden Valley. Perfect. Um, so, you know, if, if you think in terms of, you know, what, what do we believe as a district, right? And one of our over here at Garden Valley, one of our overarching um, strategic goals is, is student achievement. Right, what can we really do to help to continue to improve student achievement, help our kids continue to grow moving forward? And another belief we've already started, so we have a belief in our kids and the importance of who they are and what we can do to help them. Another big piece to our belief system here is in our teachers, you know, and, and the efficacy and the power that our teachers have to impact our students in positive ways. You know, and it, it, you hear it all the time, research shows, research shows, you know, how does affect size? You know, it's all about teacher efficacy and, and teacher's impact. And so we have to start asking ourselves some hard questions about, well, if we believe that, and we believe in, in maximizing our students' potential, and we believe in our teachers as the most important, you know, resource we have to do that, are our systems and our supports um, reflective of that belief, of those beliefs? And when I, when I got here about five eight years ago, and, and uh, there was a, a lot of changeover um, in terms of our admin, we started to look around and talk to some teachers, talk about teacher leaders, and the answer was clearly no. Like, we weren't, we weren't in a lot of areas. We, as admin, weren't putting systems in place to support our teachers. And so in, in ways that, you know, we felt, and they felt, we, we all needed to continue to keep pace with the rapid change today of, of uh of education in the world. So we started by really diving into student-centered uh, and student-focused uh, lesson design. We worked with the uh, University of Pennsylvania uh, on some PD early on around that, you know, what does engagement look like in the classroom and, and you know, how do, how do we start to turn the learning over to kids. About the same time, we had established a curriculum development and cycle and revision cycle that included understanding by design. And if you're familiar with UBD and the, the idea of backwards design, there's a, a couple of years back, a UBD 2.0 template came out. And a lot of the shifts in the template are probably understated, but I think incredibly important uh, for where, we, where we're moving as a society with, with kids and, and curriculum for kids. And, and a largest shift in the, the newer version of UBD are from a lot of topical information topical understandings, you know, topical essential questions, the old versions, usually there was like key vocabulary in there, and all that's now now out. Uh, a lot of the new template is focused around overarching and enduring, so big picture learnings, understandings, questions, and actually, you know, UBD at its core, its main point is transfer. You know, we, we design, deliberately design understanding and learning, you know, for kids for meaning and transfer. And so really now articulating what are those transfer goals, those long-term transfer goals for our kids. And out of that, so, so the design process now shifts from what am I going to 
how am I going to teach and what activities am I going to build with X content or X sub skills to what are students going to be doing with this content or skill. So one of the things we did early on in terms of shifting to UVD was with the acquisition skills piece of the document, really shift from, you know, here's the list of content, here's the list of skill, to let's combine those and make those swabots, right? Students will be able to. Yes. Statements. And so, and the, the first group that we worked heavily with at that level was our, our two non social studies teachers, uh, Dave Pimentel and Christine Gumpert. And they sort of came to me when they first got here, like, hey, did you ever think about not buying textbooks and, you know, uh, giving us a chance to develop our own? And I was like, wow, I love that idea. You know, and then quickly realized we didn't have the technology or infrastructure to do it right away. So it took us about two years to kind of get a one-to-one and infrastructure changes to be able to do it. So they, they dove in and we had a really interesting conversation about halfway through and you know, one of them, I think it was Dave, that said, wow, I, I, you know, always believed I was student-centered, and I think I am in a lot of ways, but when it came to designing courses and designing curriculum, I was designing sort of what I was doing with the material and what activities they were going to do. I wasn't really designing with what they're doing with it in mind. You know, and there's a subtle right. difference there, but a really powerful one. And so really focusing that backwards design process uh, on kids, you know, and what they're doing with the material was, was step it was a, a huge first step for us. Because then the second step came with open education resources, right? And this gets mm-hmm. back to what I was saying earlier about do our systems support our beliefs? And so we were saying that, yes, we believe in maximizing our kids' potential and personalized learning through authentic and purposeful innovation, right? So we want to personalize your learning, and we believe in you guys and our teachers as the, you know, the most important thing for our kids. And then when you looked at what we were doing from a budgetary standpoint, we were spending over 70% of our curriculum and tech book budget on textbooks. So spending over 70% of our funds and resources to other places. Wow. That didn't know our kids, didn't know our kids, yeah. didn't know our curriculum, didn't know our teachers. And when you talk to teachers, they're kind of like, yeah, we just kind of found like sort of the textbook that most matches what we do. Uh, we really only use like five chapters out of it, you know, or some departments are like, well, we really only use it for the problem sets, mm-hmm. you know, and then when you start to go in your head, like, wow, that's a $30,000 set of textbooks, like, expensive couple chapters, you know, and yeah. then we start to have some really good conversations around, well, look, guys, if we believe in you, we need some reallocating resources, and so what, and, and time and professional learning, and so what we ended up doing was taking that 70% that was going outside the district, and we were then turning it around and spending it inside the district and reallocating it into uh, higher salaries for our teachers to write and develop and curate OER materials um, that connected directly to those robots I talked about earlier in the acquisition pieces of UVD. Uh, and then also on PD, you know, I mean, education is changing. And with the, the amount of technology, and I learned this in the question of the future back in 2005, 2006, with the way technology is now, like, you've got to change what you do in the classroom and how you do it. Um, and it's, it's revisiting those ideas of how do I design courses, how do I design lessons. You know, that's, that's all shifted from when we learned about that in college. So that then led to, you know, so, so that gave us an opportunity to bring in some outside companies to train our teachers. You know, like, hey, let's, let's pay ex- people that are experts in this and let's have them come work with this cohort of teachers to help them start to build online and blended learning courses through the OER process. Because the other thing we realized was we were losing a lot of kids to cyber charter schools. 
um, that couldn't be in a face-to-face only environment. And in Pennsylvania, the number money follows the child, so we were losing close to seven hundred thousand dollars out of the district to cyber schools. And so we started our own e-school about three years ago. Sam Lenando, our tech director, uh, Mark Dr. Mark Petrata, and Sam really kind of got that up and running. And said, you know, okay, we have to start bringing these kids back. You know, then let's stop kids from leaving and, and we can give them a better education here because we know our teachers are really good and if we pay our teachers to teach the, the online classes, you know, we can, um, we know the kids are going to have a better experience. And so it was about that time when we, we had to purchase initially a, a sort of an online curriculum because we didn't have anything, you know. And, and as Sam and I got talking, he's like, yo, he's like, you're doing this ODR thing. We've got this online thing. Can we start to use OER as a gateway into helping our teachers then start to build their own e-school courses so we can stop paying this outside company for their courses, which aren't that great. You know, they're good, but, you know, everybody thinks we can do it better, right? <laughs> so we, uh, I said, yeah. And so we basically now have added the step of, you know, we're doing the curriculum design, the backwards design with UBD. We're doing a heavy OER, open education resource training and development, connecting that back to our UBD documents. Um, and everything's being hosted in Google now. And so it's all interactive and live, living and breathing. And then we're now transitioning into some heavy professional learning this year with uh, an outfit called the Global Online Academy. And they, they do a lot of really high-level uh, online and blended course design. So we're now putting our teachers, this is sort of this cohort, a couple cohorts through that training. And our outcome, we're hoping, is that we're not hoping, we're, the outcome will be sort of these two buckets we're trying to sell for the future, which is some blended learning options at our high school, um, and eventually, hopefully, the middle school. Um, and we had one blended pilot this year. We've got about, I think, six or seven up for next year. And then also teachers that are at that next level of then digitizing all of this in the school year, which is our learning management system, and actually having homegrown e-school courses replace the purchase curriculum that we have. So it's... Um, there's, you know, there's sort of this, this synergy right now here, here at Garden Valley uh, throughout the district. Um, it's, it's, it starts at the top and it works itself all the way, all the way throughout. And um, we're really starting to take risks with, you know, maybe, maybe the kids don't have to be in a teacher's classroom every day. Let's see what, let's see what happens. You know, and, and we're getting feedback from the kids and feedback from the teachers. And, you know, it's giving us opportunities to differentiate more, to work with small groups. Uh, if needed, it's giving more flexibility to our uh, to our kids. Um, you know, we started actually last year with doing blended professional learning for our teachers, where third session on a Friday before Memorial Day, if you did your two hours work ahead of time, you can go home. You know, and so and or you know, opening a school, we blended our first three hours of opening where everyone did online work and, and they got to actually put their kids on the bus for the first time in 20 years, you know, for their first day of school because they didn't have to be here at 7.30. And so, you know, we're trying to, to take that idea of personalized learning and flexibility that is, seems to be everywhere else in society right now except education, <laughs> you know, and trying to build those structures into education, A, to honor our teachers and their expertise and, and the trust and show them that we have trust in you. You know, hey, we can say we trust you and if we force you to be here, 733 for all these PD days that really has trusted you. You know, and so again, it goes back to the that idea of our system supporting you know, our practices and, and our beliefs. And so, um, you know, and it also was a good model for them to say, hey, this feels really good, doesn't it? So we're going to try this with kids too. 
you know, and see how that works uh, for them as well. And, and what we're finding is, you know, not everybody can sit in a face-to-face class every day all year, you know, and, and we have, you know, a, a over 70 kids, I think, now have been through e-school um, over the past year and a half um, for a variety of reasons, you know, everything from um, emotional needs to a couple of kids, a kid in ninth grade on the New York World Bowl soccer team. You know, we have a professional, semi-professional Olympic figure skater. You know, kids that aren't traveling all the time. Um, so we're now providing that here. And they're now still members of Garnet Valley. They're going to get a Garnet Valley diploma. You know, they can participate in Garnet Valley activities and things of that nature. So that's really sort of where we're pushing the, um, the envelope a bit in, in terms of challenging traditional notions of space and time. Uh, and, and what does learning really look like? Because we'd love to see in a couple of years that a freshman open up the course selection guide and a variety of courses that can be like, hey, I gotta take X course. Well, there's a fully face-to-face version, a blended version, and a fully online version. I'm gonna pick what's best for me. Um, you know, and, and what works best with my schedule. And that's where we're, we'd like to eventually end up down the road. Uh, but that's really, it's, it's using that idea of a really good student-centered curriculum design you know, really solid student-centered resource design and connecting those two to then move into that world of blended and online learning and course design around uh, kids and, and using that as sort of our way to challenge some of the traditional notions of school. You know what, I mean, this is why I really wanted to have you on the show, and we've talked a couple of times, and, you know, I'm familiar with everything that you guys have been doing, but, and and you, you alluded to it earlier, but, you know, it's... It's just so refreshing and so great to hear and then see evidence from uh, not just you as an individual, but what you've done for your school system, transitioning from just talking about it, having an idea to actually taking that next step and acting on it for your for your yeah. students and teachers and I mean so what advice would you give to somebody because you know for for folks like us and you know probably the people listening and the people that have done done this like they they see the writing on the wall like they know that something has to change but what right. what advice would you give to the person uh, as almost like a so let's just say a classroom teacher like what is the first step that a teacher should take to make this journey, to the first step to get started. Well, we'll go back to what you, you know, what you had asked earlier about what are we after, what are sort of barriers in some ways. I would say, you know, the best way you can let go of the fear of control, you know, component to, to your, whether it's your classroom, your department, your building, you know, or your district, I, I think is a really important piece. I mean, we, we have that kind of fail forward motto and culture here now. You know, and, and we tell our teachers, like, you know, if you want to take care of this and try something, you know, do it. We're not going to have to throw you under the bus for it. You know, and if, hey, if it impacts scores, it impacts scores, we'll go back and revisit, you know. And, and so I think, you know, from a, from a, a micro level, just kind of stepping out and fear and control piece. And, and I think to help with that, reach out. I, I mean, I, I didn't get here, you know, we as a district, I mean, we spent, we, we always joked with, and I got here five years ago, and like our teachers didn't have laptops. And it was like 2012, you know? And, yeah. and so we joked about like being late to the game, but that actually did really good for us because we spent the first two years and still continually are visiting schools that are already there. You know, we're going to colleges, we're going to districts all around the tri state area. You know, we're making connections at conferences through things like the ITA. 
you know, um, and, and doing Google Hangouts, and people were, were literally searching, you know, like, who's doing this well? And then we're just sending emails, hey, you got some time for Google Hangouts, love to pick your brain, see what went well, see what didn't work. So I'd say for some of that, like, you know, reach out, you know, find districts or other teachers um, through your professional learning network, you know, that have already tried or are trying things and, and, and just, just kick around ideas. You know, I, I think like anything, when you're, you're taking risks and you're doing it together with somebody, um, it's, uh, it's a little easier, you know, to, to bounce those ideas off of them and, and scale together sometimes and learn from those as long as you're, you know, reflective about it. So I'd say that that's a big first step at, at the micro level. I think at the macro level, um, you know, whether you're a building principal or, um, you know, districts, agent like I am, or, you know, even a superintendent, I think what's helping us move here quickly are, are two things. I used the word synergy earlier. I mean, we really, as a team, are, are 90% on the same page with all of this. And this is really being driven and supported uh, from our superintendent, from Dr. Bertrand. He's really setting that kind of that vision for, you know, let's, like, let's go. You know, we're, we're going to be future ready, and, and then giving us the autonomy and support, and you know everything to to, kind of, to run with it a bit. But it, it's really a huge team effort. I mean, you know, you always hear about curriculum and technology offices shouldn't be separate; they should be one and the same. And you know, places that I've been or I've, I've worked through the the districts, they're two completely different islands. And what we've really tried to do here is, is you know, really work collaboratively across some of those offices to make sure that, you know, what we're doing in the curriculum office um, reflects what the buildings need, you know, in terms of the course programming they're doing, you know, like our high schools in the middle of trying to create um, schools and pathways uh, for help to help kids sort of, you know, effectively and more focused, you know, way choose sort of electives across disciplines. And, you know, I think that's us, you know, in the curriculum office because of how we have our writing cycle and what we do impacts them in terms of getting stuff done. So, you know, and similarly, the OER work impacts technology because we have to have access to Google to help post it, you know, at least here. You know, and then what Sam's doing with Blended, it, like it, it's all, it all fits together. So really, I think from a macro level, being open to and, and collaborative uh, with the other departments and, and the other piece to that, I would say the most important thing I think we've done, go back to our beliefs in our teachers, is, you know, most everything we do is, is by committee. You know, and we have a process here called the uh, LEA. It's, it's the League of Educational Advancement. And it's basically a collaborative, participatory decision-making process. Uh, and so we have probably sometimes too many committees, but we have a lot of uh, teacher and admin collaborative work groups that help to make a lot of these decisions um, and push a lot of this change. And, and it's, you know, and, and just trying to say, hey, we're going too fast. Hey, let's slow down. You know, well, yeah, I think we're ready to try it. People are scared, but, you know, if we just dive in and get through it, we'll be fine. You know, so it's getting that, that teacher. And in some cases, the parent committee students as well. We've got students and parents on a few of the committees. Um, so I think, you know, micro level, you know, reach out, trust the learning network, find other people that are doing what you want to try, and, and then just start doing it. You know, I mean, it's just yeah. taking that, but it's always the fear of that first step that holds us back for so long. And I think it's just, you know, walk to the edge and jump. You know, and, and then a year later, when you jump a second time, it's going to be a little bit better. You know, and if you jump a year later, a third time, it's going to be even better. You know, and, yeah. and so that's that piece and do it collaboratively. And then I think from the district level, macro level, admin level, you know, start to start to pull the team together. 
um, you know, administratively and, and also um, your teachers, teacher leaders, like have those different voices in a room um, problem solving throughout a process uh, to help make some of this change because I, I mean, I can tell you this much too. I guess the third thing I would say is it is not easy. Um, it is not easy from a, a amount of work standpoint, but also just from a social emotional standpoint, you know, in terms of change. It's, it's too much at times, you know, for all of us to try to manage, teachers to try to manage. Uh, but if, we, if you're in it together, you know, and, and, you're, and you're fighting through that and you're taking your steps back certain meetings and everyone's having productive conflict and, you know, everyone's throwing their hands up like, this is a dumb idea, you know, everyone walks out and you come back a month later Everyone's like, all right, we're all good. You know, all right, let's keep going. So it's just understanding that it's, it's a process. Um, yeah. And that's going to take time uh, to, to get all of it done and get through in that sense. Yeah, that, that's just that's great advice. And, you know, I, we had a meeting yesterday, actually, where we had uh, – I was lucky enough to be the only teacher there. We have a county with 72 schools, but it was basically a student-led uh, meeting with me, a few principals, and um, central office staff. And our s- assistant superintendent of instruction, Dr. Tigan, she brought up a great point that, uh, you know, it to use your term, synergy, like you, you have to have it and you, you know, sometimes you have to be intentional about trying to create it, but you know, you do need that teacher that's willing to take a risk. You do need that principal that's willing to allow it. And you need that central office staff that's willing to say, Hey, it is okay. If you take a risk, we know that that's going to be necessary in order to keep this thing moving forward. So that's the, that's the macro level on our end that you were talking about. And then on the micro level, just from my personal experience reaching out is initially a hard thing to do but then what you find or at least what I have found is that so many people are willing to have a conversation and even help and collaborate on changing education both those folks that are in k-12 but also the higher ed folks the the business world like People want to get involved and people want to do the right things for kids. And sometimes you don't know what that's going to look like in the outcome. But like you said, just take that first step and then learn from it. Sure, sure. And, you know, the whole the whole push now with the Future Ready framework is, is been awesome because when we initially built our, our tech plan here five years ago because we were um, uh, and really we're less than a district had um, anything beyond a desktop computer and a, um, a smartboard. So we built it around the National Education Tech Plan, which was sort of like the guiding document at the time. And, and that was really focused on just stuff. You know, do you have access? Do you have infrastructure? Like, so it was very uh, much just, okay, how do we how do we effectively self-assess where we are in terms of having what we need? And then when the Future Ready Framework came out, you know, that was really powerful in the sense of like, okay, your end game is personalized learning, you know, and, and here are the other seven or eight years, collaborative leadership, you know, uh, personalized PD, curriculum instruction assessment. These are the things that you need to really start to think about to get yourself there. And to your point, one of those gears is community partnerships. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's like, oh, wow. You know, we've always talked about, like, when I got here, we're like, oh, we really should get a, you know, a, a board, advisory board together, local business leaders, you know, local universities to vet our courses through and if we're going to make a change let's get their input on what they see 
you know, and we never did early on. You know, we had other things that were priority, but we're now now you start to look at that future ready framework, and it's like, you know, wow, we you realize a couple of things. Well, we have a couple more connections in the community that we you know that we thought initially, but said, okay, what are we missing? You know, like let's run a, a, a panel of you know local graduates and parents of graduates that are across all different areas of disciplines and all different, you know, had all different experiences outside of, you know, high school in terms of education and work and let's bring them in and let kids go talk to them. You know, if you're interested in going to X, you know, the University of Richmond, you know, here's two Richmond grads. But there are parents in the district, like talk to them about what they what that experience is like. Or if you want to go into, you know, a, a master electrician program, you know, like here's two master electricians that work in the district. Like let's talk to them and, and really trying to facilitate that that outreach. Um, and, and, you know, I think some part of this, too, is as a district, we can only do so much to build those structures. I think, you know, you mentioned this earlier, individually, you just got to get out there and start looking around. Yeah. You know, if you stand around and just wait for the district to do it, it's going you know, to be a slow process. <laughs> yeah. So I just got to share this real quick. We, um, we have our, our career and technical education program Um kind of see that you know these athletes are being celebrated and these individuals that are going off to ivy league schools are are being celebrated um and so what kind of creative thing and i'm not gonna lie i didn't even know we were doing this but they created a cte signing day uh and made a lot of publicity around it where kids yeah getting into these trade schools um were getting that same kind of exposure and pat on the back that other kids were getting and and i just i thought that was just so cool to see that's fantastic and that's fantastic yeah and uh all right so look Anthony, first of all, again, I, I appreciate you being on, uh, and this is some this is some serious work that we're both doing, and that a lot of people listening yeah. to this are doing, um, and it needs to be done. I always say that uh, you know we have a now that we see the evidence, whether, whether it's social media or whether it's a conference, we see the evidence that people are getting in their kids from making the shift. Uh, getting out of the factory model mindset of education, um, we have a moral obligation to do something about it. And I just, I, I sincerely appreciate from human to human the work that you put in to make those changes possible. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to share. I mean, I think it goes back to, you know, the more we can learn from others, you know, the, the better off we're all going to be at the end of it. Yep. So look, I'm, I'm not letting you off the hook yet. I want to lighten things up a little bit. I'm, I've, I stole this from Vogue magazine, so I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you a few uh, random questions, and you just answer okay. them as quickly as you can, and we'll get you okay. out of here. So uh, what is a book that you have read that has positively shaped your life? There's a book, and I'm looking at it on my shelf right now because I um – keep it with me wherever I go. It's called Journey to the Heart of the World, uh, a search for Tibet's lost paradise. Um, and in a nutshell, it's, I, I traveled for a long time when I was in my, my 20s and, and spent some time in Australia and Scotland. And, um, it, it's just, it's a, a, a guy who takes a, a backpacking trip with a group and tries to find, you know, the, the, the mythological, you know, lost paradise, Shangri-La basically, and, and so the whole book is, is this, um, if, you're, if you ever read, um, 
got a great surround where where Steinbeck does like a chapter of like the journey, you know, and the characters and does a chapter of like intense description of, you know, the country and the dust bowl. It's similar to that. It's like here's these guys on a on a, a trip and they're they're cutting through a jungle and they're dealing with all that and then there's these inner chapters of really heavy sort of reflections on, you know, Buddhist thought and, and um, you know, inner inner turmoil and peace. And so it's this really intense back and forth between this, this physical journey, literal journey, and then this sort of spiritual and, and you know, metaphysical journey that this guy's taking, you know, uh, to, to achieve, quote-unquote, uh, a goal of his. That sounds like a great book. I'm going to have to check that one out. One to ten, how excited are you about life right now? About life? I'm a ten plus. Love it. So who should – so, of course, you and what the Garnet Valley School District is doing. But other than that, who should everyone be following or paying attention to right now? I would say Man, let me come back to that one. We'll come back to that one. Alright, so the next one's yeah. easy. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Couple cups of that. Alright. <laughs> Favorite band of all time? The Black Crows. So if you could sing a duet with anyone, who would it be? If I could sing a duet with anyone, it would be Natalie Mead. Okay. So I don't think you want I don't think you want to be <laughs> that ever made its way into my uh into my uh into my makeup. So your the next question you can't choose singing, but if you had one superpower, what would it be? Like one superpower. Like the power to heal. Like that. So if you could take three people Alive or dead right now that you would have dinner with, who would it be? Uh, I would I would bring back my great grandfather okay. uh, on my dad's side. Okay. Um I'd be very minimal memories of him as a young kid, but always was impressed by the life he built here in the United States. Um I would, I would love to sit and chat with uh, Jeffrey Chaucer. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I just that that the first time I ever read and heard Canterbury Tales, read it in Middle English, was what what sort of turned me on, so to speak, to, to being an English teacher and getting into English language and all that. Sure. And then. Um, I would say the third person would probably be uh, Humphrey Bogart. I'm a I'm a you know huge Casablanca fan and, and some of those older the older movies that he's done and I always was really impressed by him as an actor and and things of that nature. So I think that would be that would be those those would be my three. All right, so I, this wasn't written down, but just hearing that, I just came came up with this. So, where would you go eat? You you got these people. Where are y'all going to dinner? <laughs> uh, well, for bringing back my my great grandfather, I would say probably my uncle's pizza shop in Queens. Nice. It was own, own pizza in, in 
the Jamaica section of Queens. It's actually now my cousin's. Uh, my uncle's have since passed, but uh, my cousin Vito now, now runs the, the pizza shop there. I love it. All right. Last question. What is the best advice that you have ever received? Just generally? Sure. Um, I, I would say it's, it's, you know, work hard, be kind, and, and don't stand around and hire problems. I love it. Anthony Gabriel, I sincerely appreciate it. The last final thing, uh, I know where I can find you and always see your work and what you're doing, but where can other people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Gabriel, M-R-G-A-B-R-I-E-L-E. Uh, and then my blog is anthonyjgabriel.com. So I'm an occasional blogger. I don't get to as much as I like, but there's also other things on there that sort of help share out some of the work and give opportunities for uh, connections and collaboration. So uh, that's where that's, those are probably the two best places to get me. All right. Um, somewhat of a Philadelphia Eagles fan, Anthony Gabriel, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. I really uh really cool uh very honored and humbled to be uh to be on the podcast and up to uh up to hopefully pay it forward a little bit down the road yes sir i appreciate you keep doing what you do and um have a good good rest of the year you as well all right hey everybody jason vest here from the after ed podcast i hope you enjoyed today's episode don't forget if you want more tune in to after ed live on youtube We are showcasing things that students do in their element and, quite frankly, just killing it, doing things that they are interested in that could one day prepare them for life after Ed. Have a good one.